Thanks for listening to the Journey Christian Church podcast. We're on a mission to make disciples who love God, love people, and serve the world. Our prayer is that this message encourages you today. And remember, Journey is a place where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and through Jesus, anything is possible. Well, let me tell you about my first full-time ministry. My first full-time ministry was in Jackson, Mississippi. I was the senior minister of Southwest Christian Church. That's a picture of our building and a picture of the sign that was out in front of the building. I was a, I was a senior pastor there from 1984 to 1988. I was all of 22 years of age, and Melinda was 20 when we moved there. They were desperate when they hired me. Had to be. <laughs> Our, our church building was located five miles west of the Metro Center on Highway 18 West. And I say that not because you should immediately say, oh, I know exactly where that is, but because we ran regular daily radio spots. And I said that line every time I mentioned the church, Southwest Christian Church, five miles west of the Metro Center on Highway 18 West. We were sort of located on the outskirts of Jackson, and we wanted people to be able to find us. And when people did find us, our church's name, Southwest Christian Church, led to many interesting conversations. Now, there's something you need to know about Mississippi. There aren't many Christian churches there. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. There are plenty of churches in Mississippi. In fact, it may be one of the most church-ized communities I've ever lived in. You've heard of the Bible belt in our country. Jackson, Mississippi may very well be the buckle on the Bible belt. Most of the churches there were Baptist. In fact, I came to believe this, that if you weren't Baptist, you were suspicious. <laughs> now, while there were plenty of churches, there were only about 24 Christian churches like Journey in the whole state. And the church that I pastored was the third or fourth largest one in the state at the time. And our Sunday morning attendance only averaged around 150. So there wasn't a lot of brand recognition there for the Christian church. Now, because of the plentiful number of people who had some sort of church background and the paltry number of Christian churches in the state, people who visited the church for the first time would almost always ask this question. Here's the question. What kind of church is this? What kind of church is this? And maybe you're visiting for the first time today in Lake County, or you're visiting with us for the first time online, or you're here in Apopka for the first time, and that's your question. What kind of church is this? And here's how I usually replied as a young pastor in Mississippi. I said, we're just a Christian church. Never one time did someone say, well, that clears up everything. Thanks for explaining that to me. I totally get it now. Never happened. Instead, one question almost always came next, and this question is at the heart of this new series we're starting today. You could probably guess what that question was. Yeah, but what kind of Christian? Anybody see a problem with that question? Anyone else bothered that the term Christian has to be defined further than simply Christian? When did the term Christian become so ambiguous, so unclear, so uncertain? Where do you go when just a Christian doesn't seem like a satisfactory explanation. Furthermore, how would you define what a Christian is? Here's what I know. If we divided everybody up in this room 
into groups of 10, and the same out of Lake County, if the whole number of people in the room was divided up in groups of 10, and I ask you to define a Christian, we get 12 different answers out of every group. Because some of you don't even agree with yourself. I love that old story. I've told a lot about the guy who was rescued from a deserted island. He'd been stranded there by himself for many years. The rescuers searched the island, see if there's anybody else there. And they found three small buildings the guy had built over the years. And they asked him what those buildings were for. He said, well, the first one's where he lived and the second's where he went to church. And they said, what's the third building for? He said, that's where I used to go to church. <laughs> there's an interesting background about the word Christian that we should look at before we go any further. And here it is. Christian is only used three times in the entire New Testament. Does that surprise anybody? Christian, the word, is only used three times in the entire New Testament. Here's the first usage of the word. It comes from the book of Acts. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul, they were early Christian leaders. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. We don't know who called them that, but most scholars don't think that name came from inside the church. In fact, most people believed it was used as sort of a derogatory term by people outside the church to describe people who were following Jesus inside the church. In other words, it was a label given to them, not by people within the Jesus community, but by those who were outside observers who saw people live and act in certain ways, and they said, oh, those are Christians. And they didn't mean that as a compliment. We can see that from a second usage. This is also from the book of Acts, Acts 26. Then Agrippa, Agrippa was like a Roman official. Then Agrippa said to Paul, Saul, do you think that in such short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Now, Agrippa was not being convinced by Paul. He was being condescending to him. He was not being sincere when he asked that question. He said that with a sneer. What do you think you'll turn me into a Christian, Paul? Kind of like when people were first called geeks or nerds in our culture. You understand, those are not names that the people inside those groups came up with for themselves, but terms that people looking on from the outside labeled them with in some sort of a disparaging way. And yet today, we have a whole business called the Geek Squad. <laughs> They'll come out to your house and fix your computer driving a vehicle with the word geek proudly printed on the side. And today we have something called Nerd Wallet, which is one of the largest and most influential online financial information websites. But initially, those terms weren't given to become a favorable form of brand recognition. Also, as Andy Stanley points out in his latest book, Not In It to Win It, Listen to this. He said, in the first century, Christian was a political term, not a religious one. And some of you said, aha, I knew it. Hang on. First century followers of Jesus weren't branded Christian to differ differentiate them from Zeusians, or people that worship Zeus, or Jupiterians, people that worship the planet Jupiter. The term Christian was coined based on Latin political terminology. Christian was analogous to other political associations, such as Caesarian, a follower of Caesar, or Herodian, a follower of Herod, or later Neronian, a follower of Nero. Non-Christians in Antioch, where the term Christian first was coined, viewed followers of Jesus as political partisans of a king. In time, he writes, to be called 
Christian would mark a man or woman as anti-Roman, not anti-religious. And look at this quote he gives. Christians were viewed as threats to the state, not because of what they believed. Christians were viewed as threats to the state because of who they choose, chose to obey. Rome had little interest in which God or God's people chose to worship. Their concern was purely political, imperial. People were allowed to worship their many gods, but only one king they were to submit to. Rome's mandate was unambiguous. Here it is. Worship your Christ, but you better obey Caesar. Separating sacred from secular was not an issue for idol-worshiping pagans, but for Christians, it was a non-starter. Jesus was a king who required his subjects to obey him, not merely worship him. In the book of Acts, Christian is found exclusively on the lips of critics. It was a slur. It was an insult. Imagine that. In the first century, no one asked Christians if they were Christian. They were accused of it. It reminds me of that old line I heard many years ago. If you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? So the term Christian started off in kind of a rocky and sort of mocking way. It's not a label that the first followers of Jesus gave themselves. And today this term Christian still carries some baggage that many people don't know what to do with or what to make of it. If somebody were to walk up to you on the street and ask you, are you a Christian? Some of you would say an emphatic, yes, I am. But some of you would say, which kind? And some of you say, yeah, but not like those other kinds of Christians. Some of us use this terminology. It says this, I became a Christian. Meaning there was a time when I wasn't one, but then one day I became one. Well, how did I do that? Well, I, I prayed a prayer. I raised my hand when the pastor said, raise your hand. I went through a confirmation class. I got baptized. Some of us were raised in a tradition that taught you this. Our brand is the true brand. I mean, we're the real Christians. I don't know what those other imposters are doing on Sunday, but we're it. We use the right translation of the Bible. We baptize the right way. I mean, for crying out loud, we even have church on Sunday night and on Wednesday evening prayer meeting. Some of you might say, well, I was a Christian, but I'm not one anymore. So you kind of quit being a Christian. And some of you say, whoa, whoa, whoa. There's no such thing as a was Christian. There's no fuzzy wuzzy Christians. Fuzzy wuzzy was a bear, but there's no such thing as fuzzy wuzzy Christian. You know, once a Christian, always a Christian, right? Some of you say, oh, yes, there is such a thing as a was Christian because you were raised in a tradition that said if you commit certain sins after you become a Christian, you've blown it. And you have this constant insecurity wondering if maybe this time you've gone too far, you did too much, you said too much, and you're afraid you're just one dumb decision away from being lost forever. And you were taught that you pray a prayer to become a Christian, and you've prayed that prayer like a dozen times, like some people take Tylenol and ibuprofen. You're just kind of waiting and hoping for it to kick in. For some people, being a Christian is about what you believe, faith alone. For some, it's about how you behave. Faith without works is dead. Believe, behave, behave, believe, which amounts to about as much as the battle between left and right Twix. Isn't it interesting that this term, this, this label, this badge that all of us know, many of us wear proudly, it can be so confusing and so controversial. And finally, there's a group of you, now I just got to say this, if you're really honest, you would say this, I hate Christians. 
I don't like anything that has Christian or Christians associated with. In fact, here's how some, maybe some of you would define a Christian as an anti-science, judgmental, homophobic hypocrites who think they're the only ones going to heaven and secretly relish the fact that everyone else is going to hell. And for those of us who don't feel this way, let me give you a huge heads up. You probably have some family members that do. You probably have some friends that do. You probably have some people that you work with that do. That's why if someone were to say, are you a Christian? Many of us would say, can I qualify that? I'm not that. All this consternation and controversy over a term that only appears a total of three times in the Bible. And it was originally given by people outside the faith. And furthermore, the term's really never defined in the Bible. The closest anyone ever comes to defining a Christian is when a New Testament writer named Peter says you'll probably suffer if you are one. This is the third and final usage of the word Christian in the New Testament. Peter says, however, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you would bear that name. So while the word Christian appears in the Bible only three times, there is a word that appears over and over again to describe the followers of Jesus, and it's very clear about what it means. Here's probably its most famous usage from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples, not Christians. Go and make disciples of all nations. Disciple is a term that's used 269 times in the Bible. Just a heads up, when you get in triple digits, usage of a word, it's probably a pretty big deal. This was the term that was used to describe the first followers of Jesus by the first followers of Jesus. How do you know that? Well, the book of Acts is the history of the early church, written by Luke, who also wrote a book on the life of Jesus that bears his name, the Gospel of Luke. And this is a term that we see Luke using over and over again to describe the earliest followers of Jesus. Here's just a short sampling from the book of Acts. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Meanwhile, Saul, this before he became a Christian, was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join them. Now he's become a Christian, and he tried to join the who? The disciples. But they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha. She was always doing good and helping the poor. Lydda was near Joppa. So when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him and urged him, please come at once. And this is what we read a little earlier there. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch, but right after he introduces that word, Luke goes right back to calling them disciples. Take a look at this. They preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. After spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. And one more, while Apollos, another early Christian leader, was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples. Now you may be thinking, what's the point? I mean, isn't a Christian and a disciple the same thing? Not really. One's a label. The other's a lifestyle. It's the difference between singing the national anthem and joining the army. One is ceremonial. The other is sacrificial. 
Or it's the difference between having a mascot and a master. You see, a mascot is something we like to trot out to rally, rally people around our cause. A master is someone that you do whatever they tell you to do. And most people treat Jesus more like their mascot than their master. I read about a guy named Dennis from Katy, Texas, who needed some same-day dry cleaning done before he left on an important business trip. And he remembered one store with a huge sign, one hour dry cleaners on the other side of town. So he drove all the way over the other side of town, dropped off a suit. He filled out the little you know, tag for the clothes. And he told the clerk, I need this in an hour. And she said, I can't get this back to you until Thursday. He said, I thought you did dry cleaning in an hour. She said, no, that's just the name of the store. There are too many who claim the name Christian but fail to act like the one whose name we bear. And that creates great confusion and disillusionment for those who have yet to believe. But you can't do that with the word disciple. The point is, Jesus did not call the 12 Christians to follow him. He called the 12 disciples. Jesus did not come to start a new religion called the Christian religion. He came to love the human race in a way that no religion, not even Christianity, can ever box in. Arthur F. Burns, this guy right here, he served as the chairman of the United States Federal Reserve System, and later he was an ambassador to West Germany back when there was an East and West Germany. He was a man of considerable political influence in our nation. He was economic counselor to a number of presidents from Dwight Eisenhower to Ronald Reagan. When he spoke, his opinions carried considerable weight in Washington. Arthur Burns was also Jewish. So when he began attending an informal White House group for prayer and fellowship led by followers of Jesus in the 1970s, no one knew how to involve him in the group. And week after week, when different people took turns in ending their meeting in prayer, Arthur Burns was passed by out of a mixture of respect and reticence. One week, however, the group was led by a newcomer who did not know that Arthur Burns was unofficially exempted from leading the closing prayer for the group. And as the meeting ended, the newcomer turned to Arthur Burns and he asked him to close the time with prayer. He agreed. Some of the old timers glanced at each other in surprise and wondered what's going to happen now. But without missing a beat, Arthur Burns reached out, held hands with the others in the circle, and he prayed this amazing prayer. I want you to see this. He said, Lord, I pray that you would bring Jews to know Jesus Christ. I pray that you would bring Muslims to know Jesus Christ. And finally, Lord, I pray that you would bring Christians to know Jesus Christ. Amen. Isn't that powerful? When Jesus sent his followers out, he didn't say, go make Christians. He said, go make disciples. And while it's always been hard to pin down exactly what a Christian is or isn't, it seems to have been that way from the beginning of people being called one. There's no ambiguity about what being a disciple means. And there never has been. I don't care if it's in Greek, English, or whatever language. A disciple is a learner, a pupil, an apprentice, an adherent, a follower. That's all a disciple is. It's a learner, a pupil, an apprentice, an adherent, a follower. A disciple is someone who does this. I'm trying to make a decision. How would you handle that? Because that's how I'm going to handle it. I'm, I'm trying to decide how to respond to a situation. How would you respond to that situation? Because that's how I'm going to respond. What would you do if you were me? Because that's what I'm going to do. How would you manage this relationship? 
Live your life like this. Handle your money. Deal with people that don't like you or that you don't like, because that's what I'll do. A disciple is someone who says, give me some direction. Show me how to live my life. And before you even give me the answer, I want you to know my answer is going to be yes. That's a lot different than saying, oh, I'm a Christian, which can mean a whole bunch of different things, but it's hard to misdefine or misinterpret what a disciple is. Folks, we are in the disciple-making business. In fact, our mission statement at Journey Christian Church is this. We make disciples of Jesus who love God, love people, and serve the world. That's what we do. Because we believe being a disciple of Jesus is the greatest opportunity that can ever be offered to a human being. The gospel itself is the invitation to live as Jesus' disciple under the reign of something that he called the kingdom of God. This is from Mark's gospel. After John the Baptist was put into prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. And the good news of God is just short, the gospel. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus is announcing a new administration had come to earth, one that people had been longing for through the ages, what he calls the kingdom of God, living in the presence of God, in God's favor, with God's power. Jesus says, now this has become available on earth through me, through my life, in my body, through my teachings, my words, my presence. You see, the kingdom was near because the king had come near, and wherever the king goes, the kingdom goes with him. Jesus was not predicting a future event here his arrival was presenting a long-awaited fulfillment. Jesus' arrival actually brought up there, down here. That's what he taught his disciples to pray when he said, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done where on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus said, You want to know what this kind of life looks like? You look at my life. You want to be part of that kingdom? You can do that now. You just come and be with me. You just come and follow me. No longer is it necessary to be part of a specific nation or ethnic group or the bloodline of the people of Israel. Now, anybody who wants to can be part of God's kingdom reign on earth. And he, he launched this kingdom of God movement. And for one brief shining moment, his little community takes the land of Palestine by storm. But then he's executed. He's crucified. Everybody thought that one brief shining moment was over, but they were all wrong because on the third day he was raised again. And it turns out that it was actually our death and our guilt that was defeated on the cross, not Jesus. And now this unstoppable movement of Jesus followers begins to spread first in Jerusalem and then Judea and then Samaria until, until the ends of the earth, just like Jesus said it would. And since that day, 2,000 years ago, governments and civilizations and political movements and economic systems and recessions have come and gone. They rise and fall, yet Jesus Christ remains the brightest hope of the human race. And what he said then, he says now, come to me, follow me, trust me, I'll give you life. Jesus' invitation is a call to a spiritual transformation, to change the human heart, to bring new life. I love how John Ortberg puts this. He says, Jesus' plan was not to start a church full of people who call themselves Christians, but remain cranky, egotistical, judgmental, deceptive, greedy, lustful, gossipy, self-righteous, religious people until they die and go to heaven and then suddenly get happy. His plan was to begin a society 
of the transformed heart that begins here and now. Listen to me. The gospel is not a presentation about what you need to do to go to heaven after you die. The gospel is a proclamation about what God has done to get heaven into you before you die. Jesus' invitation is not about a final relocation program. It's about an ongoing transformation process. It's not about where God wants to take you to later. It's about what God wants to do in you right now. Jesus' good news wasn't so much about how you get into heaven as it was about getting heaven into you. Here's the main thing I want to say in this talk. main thing I want us to take away. This is a statement made by a Christian philosopher named Dallas Willard. A great writer as well. Dallas Willard said, there's no problem in human life that apprenticeship to Jesus cannot solve. There's no problem in human life that apprenticeship to Jesus cannot solve. Meaning this, your life will be better and you will be better at life if you follow Jesus. Who doesn't want that? Your life will be better and you'll be better at life if you follow Jesus. I don't know anybody that shouldn't want that. The reason the offer of discipleship to Christ matters more than anything else, there's no human problem that apprenticeship to Jesus can't solve. List whatever problem you want to list today. Greed, sexual assault, sexual identity, fear, violence, injustice, divorce, racism, sexism, neglect, bitterness, death, pollution, rejection, suffering, apathy, addiction, grief, war, hatred, hunger, whatever it is. There's no problem in human life that apprenticeship to Jesus can't solve. I'm going to tell you something that you won't hear outside of a gathering of followers of Jesus like this, but here it is. Human problems will not be solved by human means. Human problems will not be solved by human nature. You know why? Because human nature is our biggest problem. Because the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. There are all kinds of problems technology will never solve. There's all kinds of problems that innovations will not solve. There are problems education will not solve. Wealth will not solve. Affordable health care will not solve. Religion will not solve. Secure election protocols won't solve. But there is no problem in human life that apprenticeship to Jesus will not solve. How do you become a disciple of Jesus? I'm going to let Jesus tell you. Jesus gave an invitation to become a disciple in almost always the same way. And we should note it's not the same invitation that gets presented to people in our day around becoming a Christian. But I've come to believe this is Jesus' favorite invitation to become his disciple. And I'm going to give you a few examples of it. See if you can pick up Jesus' favorite invitation phrase. The first one is found in Mark's gospel. Right after Jesus begins to proclaim the good news of the gospel of the kingdom. It says that Jesus walked beside the sea of Galilee. He saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I'll send you out to fish for people. These next two references are from the Gospel of Matthew. Another man, one of his disciples, said to Jesus, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me. Let the dead bury the dead. Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Finally, this last one is from the Gospel of John. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but have the light of life. What is Jesus' favorite invitation? Follow me. Follow me. Follow me. Follow me. And not like in some legalistic, obligatory type of way. This is the invitation of grace. This invitation is literally the gateway into grace. 
and into the life you've always wanted. Follow me and I'll show you the way, Jesus says. I know you. I love you. You were made for this relationship. This is where you belong. You don't have to be smart. You don't have to be rich. You don't have to be approved by others. And you certainly don't have to be perfect. But you do have to be humble and you have to surrender. And you have to say, Jesus, you lead and I'll follow. And he will. I'm going to give you just a little picture. I ran across this this story, and it just kind of captured me. And it's a little bit different because this is not the kind of illustration that I normally stumble across. But I want to give you a little picture of what it means to be an apprentice of Jesus from the world of music. If you were to ask informed and devoted fans of jazz music, who's the greatest saxophone player of all time? Or as Pastor Dustin would say, who's the goat of jazz sax players? John Coltrane would most likely be at the top of that list. In fact, jazz historians and enthusiasts would say Coltrane is one of the handful of musicians who defined jazz music. But John Coltrane's musical creativity and excellence didn't just happen. He became an outstanding musician only by submitting himself to a long process of practice and apprenticeship. In other words, the writings of, of a theologian and art enthusiast, Stephen Guthrie, is where I read this story. And here's what he says. From the time he was a young teenager, Coltrane maintained an intense practice regime, playing uh, for hours each day. And when neighbors complained, he would silently finger the keys of his saxophone late into the night. His first wife, Namia, referred to Coltrane as 90% saxophone. Coltrane took classes at various music institutes, conservatories, poured over practice books for hours on end. Guthrie also notes that although John Coltrane was one of the most original voices in jazz for decades, he dedicated himself to learning and internalizing the styles of older and established jazz musicians. Case in point, for nine years, a lot of people don't know this, from 1946 to 1955, John Coltrane was an anonymous journeyman working as a supporting musician in the bands of more established musicians meaning an older generation of sax players served as his instructors and he was their apprentice. In an interview, John Coltrane described how his time in this guy's band, take a look at this, that's Thelonious Monk. He had a band, that's a young John Coltrane. But Coltrane described how his time in that band became an opportunity for one-on-one tutorials. Here's what Coltrane said. I'd get my horn and start trying to find what he was playing. He'd tend to play it over and over and over. He would stop and show me some parts that were pretty difficult. And if I had a lot of trouble, he'd get out his portfolio and show me the music. When I almost had the tune down, then he would leave me to practice it. Now, I want you to look at this next quote that Stephen Guthrie wrote. Coltrane developed his voice by surrendering to another. And that's what caught me. Coltrane developed his voice by surrendering to another. Listen to this. Before he could speak on his own, he first gave himself to repeating again and again the things Monk had said. And here's the statement. The paradox of artistry is that the loss of self is the prerequisite for self-expression. And conversely, the object of mastering another's voice is finding one's own. Jesus put it like this. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. True self-expression 
is found only in self-surrender to the one who's the way, the truth, and the life. Follow him. True self-expression is found only in self-surrender to the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. Follow him. The primary evidence that you follow Jesus is not what you say you believe. Primary evidence that you follow Jesus is not a label that you attach to yourself. Oh yeah, I'm that. The primary evidence you follow Jesus is not by giving the right answers to the most complicated theological questions. Friends, the primary evidence for being a follower of Jesus is that you actually follow Jesus. We're going to talk a lot more about that in the coming weeks in this series. What's that look like theologically? What's that look like practically? But here's what I want to say today as we wrap this up. What kind of church are we? We're a Jesus-following, disciple-making church. Amen? Stand with me right now. Let's stand. Lake County, would you stand? Father, I thank you. Thank you for the opportunities to be here today, to declare, to proclaim, not about what we believe, not about what we think, but we proclaim what you've done. We proclaim what you have announced. We proclaim what you've introduced. We proclaim what you have brought near through Jesus. He was so clear. He said, follow me. Follow me, I'll give you life. Follow me, I'll make you fishers of people. Follow me. Trust me. And even if you die, you're going to live. And so we follow you, Jesus. And we thank you for that invitation of grace. We thank you for the gateway of grace that invites us into the life we've always wanted. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. If you like this podcast, we post a new message every week. So make sure to click that follow button and share it with your friends. Remember, Journey is a place where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and through Jesus, anything is possible.